Good morning. How are you? Good. Merry Christmas to you. It is still appropriate to say Merry Christmas. We are in the season of Christmas right now. Um, we're kind of conditioned in our culture to think of Christmas as a day, and it is a day. There's Christmas Day. It's a beautiful day. But also in the church calendar, Christmas is a season. It's actually a season that lasts 12 days. That might sound familiar from the old song, the 12 days of Christmas. That's not the 12 days before Christmas, no matter what like the TV specials say and like sales that they run. It's actually the 12 days starting with Christmas Day. Christmas is this season that we get to live into of recognizing that Christ has come into our world, that he took on human flesh, and that everything has changed because of him. Um, the next season that we go into after these 12 days is called Epiphany. And this is this season of recognizing that this God who came into our world, this message, this gospel has now gone out to everybody, that everybody is now part of this story. So that's what we look forward to. It's an exciting season. Um, it's an exciting season for us. We're glad to be here. Uh, yesterday, uh, Lucy, uh, my 19-month-old, saw her first snow here in Tulsa. So that was really fun because we woke up and we saw the snow and walked over to the window. And I guess from TV or something, she knew what it was. So we said, what is that? And she said, snow. <laughs> so that was really fun. It was a beautiful time. So it's good to be with you this morning. Um, I, I want to suggest something this morning. I I want to suggest that everything that we do in our lives, everything that we do, every way that we live in our lives comes from who we believe that we are, comes from our identity or even our, more specifically, our perceived identity, who we believe that we are. If we believe that we're the scum of the earth, we're going to act scummy, okay? If we believe that our worth is based and our value as a human being is based only on what other people think of us, then that's going to become an idol for us. We're going to do everything we possibly can to get other people to like us. If we believe that our worth and our value as a person is based only, if we believe that it's based only on what we produce or how much money we make or something like that, where we stand in a capitalist system, that's going to become our idol. We're going to pursue money and success and fame at all costs. But I want to suggest this morning that we have a deeper identity that there is something at the core of who we are as followers of Jesus that should impact everything that we do. I want to read today from the book of Ephesians chapter 1, and this is just the first few verses, first six verses here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In order to unpack this this morning, I want to look just at some of the basics of the culture in Ephesus. This book that we call the book of Ephesians is named after the people it was written to. It was written from Paul to a group called the Ephesians, a group in Ephesus, an early church in this culture. And Ephesus was the fourth most populous city in the Roman Empire at this time. 
So you had Rome, the largest city. You had Alexandria in Egypt. You had Antioch in Syria. And then you had Ephesus here. And the reason why Ephesus was so important in this culture was because it dominated all the trade on the Aegean coastline. So that was kind of the west side of the city. So any trade that happened through this sea came through Ephesus. And then on the east side, Ephesus was connected to all the major manufacturing centers in the Roman Empire through Roman roads. So we see this was a really connected city. It was a really important city. So if we think about the cities in our world that have kind of gained prominence because they're seaports or because they're on the sea. Obviously, New York City has significance. We also think about cities like San Francisco, Seattle, that they grew to prominence because they're connected to the rest of the world through the sea. That's what Ephesus was at this time, is it was connected to all around the world. Now, this city was also really wealthy, Ephesus was. There was a 25,000-seat theater, outdoor theater in Ephesus, a triple-arched gateway, and an expansive retail space. You can see the uh, theater, the picture of the theater here. This is kind of the remnants of this 25,000-seat theater. This was huge for this time. We're kind of used today to like, um, you know, like Jerry's World, uh, Cowboys Stadium in Dallas. It seats like 100,000 people. I live a couple blocks from LP Field in Nashville, and it seats like 70,000 people. And the Titans don't fill it up very well, at least this season. But, um, but we're used to these huge stadiums. This, at this time, was just unbelievable, 25,000-seat outdoor amphitheater theater here. Um, there was also an open-air courtyard that had a wide covered walkway all around the perimeter. And on the perimeter, there were 100, at least 100 shops that you could go and shop there. You could buy the latest fashions from Rome if you wanted to. You could buy Egyptian jewelry, which was really hard to access in many parts of the empire at that time. You could buy purple cloth, which to us doesn't sound like anything, but there were only a couple cities that actually could make the purple dye to make purple cloth at that time. So you could get purple cloth and you could get spices from anywhere in the east, anywhere in the Roman Empire to the east. So this place was really central. You could get a lot of things from around the world. I think about... um, if you've ever been to Chicago before and walked the Magnificent Mile on Michigan Avenue, it's just every kind of, you know, it's a, like consumerism, you know, like crazy all over the place. Everything you could possibly want to buy might be the 21st century equivalent to what's going on here in the empire. And in the midst of this culture of Ephesus, in this vibrant economy, Paul makes his second missionary journey to Ephesus. Now, Paul didn't plant the church in Ephesus. A man named Apollos did. There was this, um, this early church that was planted by this guy named Apollos. But Paul visited them on his second missionary journey, and when he visited them, they received the Holy Spirit. So Paul has this amazing connection to the people of Ephesus, this pastoral connection and relationship to them. And so he writes them a letter, the letter to the church at Ephesus that we call the book of Ephesians, and he's writing it most likely from prison in Rome. Paul starts off this letter by celebrating who they are, celebrating their story, their story not just as the people of Ephesus, not just the people of this region, but the great story that they're a part of, the story of the followers of Jesus. This is the story that we're part of. It's the grand story. Every conversion, every baptism, 
Every hill or victory, every valley or persecution that they've faced, every prayer, every act of discipleship in every time and every place is part of this story. And it's the story of a central character, a protagonist, the hero of the story, and that is the triune God. If you look closely here, we, the church didn't really develop the um, uh, theology or the doctrine of the Trinity until a little bit later. But in this passage, we see it's so interesting, the triune God at work. So um, Paul says here, God, the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, who has given us every spiritual blessing, or we could say blessing of the Holy Spirit. So we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune God is the center of this story, Paul says. And the first part of Paul's prayer emphasizes that we have been called by God, that he chose us. This isn't because of anything that we did, anything that we earned, anything special on our behalf, but God, out of his grace, chose us. In fact, there's a bunch of verbs in this passage. Some scholars think it's just like, it should be read as just one run-on sentence, verb after verb after verb after verb. And the subject of all of those verbs, remember English class for a second, every verb needs a subject. The subject of all of those verbs is the triune God. God does the action. He chooses. He predestined. And the purpose of this calling, the purpose of God's calling us, is not just so that we're part of the God club. Sometimes when we use words like chosen and predestined, some traditions have taken that and meant it to mean that that there's certain people who are chosen and they're like vessels of beauty and God uses them. And then God chooses other people to just be vessels of wrath and kind of destroy them and, and take out his wrath on them. But if we look all the way back at the beginning of the story, and if we look at specifically the calling of Abraham, when Abraham is called, he is called and he's blessed, and the people of Abraham are called and blessed, not to be part of a God club that's separate, but they're called and blessed to call others and to be a blessing. That calling is always about going out and blessing and calling others. And now we are invited into that process. This action that only God takes we are now invited to participate in. He chose us, it says, in him or in Christ before the foundations of the world. And that means that when God sees us, he sees us and Jesus somehow together. He sees us together. And because of what's been done in Jesus, we are sons and daughters of God. We have been adopted into the family of God. Now, there's a couple verbs here. The verb chose, he chose us. And then the word he destined or he predestined, they kind of mean the same thing. And these two words, chose and destined, are very, very similar words, but they're slightly different in their meaning. So God chose us first. This means he noticed us, he identified us, and he chooses us. But secondly, he predestined us, which means this choosing somehow changes the inside of us. It's not just that we're chosen like to feel good or something, but it actually changes our destination. It changes this choosing has now become a vocation. It's become a direction, an orientation that we're pointed into. The word destined or predestined derives from the noun for boundary, that God marks out space for you. He creates boundary for you. You're not just chosen just because it feels good, even though it does feel good to be chosen. But God has marked out something for you. You're called to a specific kind of life. 
You're called to a Christian life. It says here to be holy and blameless. You're called to a Christian type of life. You're destined for that. If you fly out from uh, the Athens airport in Greece, you'll probably notice like you do in most airports, something like this. You know, most airports, you'll see that there's a, a flight number, you know, there's a time, and then there's a destination. So if we're flying, it may be destination Tulsa. I don't know how many, how many flights come from Athens to Tulsa, but there may be a few. And so you see that there. And then if we were to zoom in and look at the title for that column that says destination, the Greek word there in Athens, because that's why it's in Greek, would say prosrismos which is the same word that Paul uses here for destination. We still use, it's not every kind of biblical Greek word that they still use in modern Greek today, but that one is a connection. So this choosing changes where we're headed, changes our vocation, it changes our life. And our destination is to be children of God. That's where we're pointed. That's who we are. Now, later in the letter, Paul addresses some really serious issues that are going on in the community. There's a lot of behavioral issues that are happening within this community, uh, lying, theft, bitterness, rage, slander, and malice, sexual impurity, greed, and intoxication. Now, some of you were just spending time with your family around the holidays, and you're thinking, that just sounds like a you know, family <laughs> gathering for us. But there's a lot of issues here. There's a lot of brokenness in this community. But Paul doesn't jump right in and talk about these behavioral issues. He starts with something different. He starts first on their identity as followers of Jesus. Who are you, Paul is saying. Before we talk about behavior, and he will address all these things. He will talk about all these things and talk about, we've got to fix this. We've got to work on this. But before he talks about behavior, he says, we need to talk about identity. We need to talk about who you are. We have to talk about belonging. The first image that Paul uses to capture their identity is that they are adopted. So I want you to take a minute and travel back with me to Ephesus and to picture yourself in this place. And let's say today that we're taking in a show. We're sitting in this 25,000-seat theater. And if you look upon the stage, the stage at that time was actually a building itself. It was three stories tall. There was an ornamental facade on the front of it. It was a beautiful place. And the play that we're seeing today is Oedipus Rex. Many of you may have read this in in, uh, school growing up, but it's based on a well-known Greek legend. And in this legend, King Laius and Queen Jocasta of Thebes, they receive a disturbing message from an oracle. And the oracle says that this baby who she has just given birth to, this newborn baby will bring a curse to their house and will cause their family great harm. So in fear and in response to this message, King Laius pins the infant's feet and tells the wife to kill the child. So Jocasta's, you know, the queen, she, she doesn't choose to do this, but she gives the task to her servant. She tells her servant to kill the child. Well, instead of killing the child, the servant abandons the child in the fields, takes the child outside, exposing the infant to the elements. And this was seen, this practice was called exposure. And this was seen as handing the child over to the gods. It's basically saying, I give up responsibility, our household gives up responsibility, and the gods are now responsible for this child. Well, as the story progresses, a shepherd finds the child and names him Oedipus, which means swollen feet. And the child is eventually raised by Polybus, who's the king of Corinth. 
Well, if you were in first century Ephesus, you would have known this legend really well. In fact, you didn't go to the play to hear this story. You knew this story. You went to see how would the actors do? How would the set design look like at this point? This story was part of your upbringing. It was part of what you knew. It was part of who you are. And even though this practice of exposure seems rightly strange and awful to us, in the first century, this was a really regular practice. People did this all the time. It wouldn't have come to a sh- as a shock to the people of Ephesus. In Roman culture, when a baby was born, a newborn was placed at their father's feet. So the newborn was taken and was placed at the father's feet. And the reason why it was the father is in this society, the the Roman Empire was ruled by an emperor, by a Caesar. And the way that they kind of kept order is that every family, through this system called the paterfamilias, every family had a father who was seen as kind of a little emperor over that family. And whatever he wanted to do just happened. It happened. So the child, the newborn, was placed at the father's feet, and the father had two choices. The first choice was that the father could kneel down and could pick up the child, bring the child close to himself, and that was a signal that he said, this child is now part of our family. He had accepted the child. Unfortunately, there was also a second option that the father had. The father could look at the child, and if he saw that the child was a girl and he wanted a boy, or if he perceived any defect or birthmark that he didn't like in the child, he could simply turn his back on the child and walk away. And at that point, the child was taken out into the elements, was taken into um, the heat of the summer or the cold in the winter, or to die of dehydration or hypothermia. So at night in Ephesus, As you shopped at one of the hundred shops, as you walked to the theater, you would constantly, every day, hear the cries of children from the fields all around you. As you walked by the garbage dump every day, you would hear the cries of children. Now, there were some in this society who would rescue the babies, and we have to put rescue in quotation marks because it wasn't really a rescue. There were people who said that they were trying to get economic gain from these children as they grew up, that maybe they would make a good slave, they believed, or they would be a prostitute. They would take these children in and they would raise them to be slaves or to be prostitutes. In fact, a few decades later, there was a doctor in Ephesus named Seranus, and he authored a manual, and it was called this, How to Recognize the Newborn That is Worth Rearing. The main thrust of this book is, would this child that you see give you a good return on your investment? Could you get economic gain from this child? So what would happen is over time, these slaves would grow up and they would walk the streets of Ephesus. And in the back of their mind, there would always be this question as they would pass by people, could that be the mother that gave birth to me? Could that be the father who turned his back on me? That was always the question in the back of their mind. And we know for sure that in the first century church that there were many, many slaves. The church in Ephesus, there were many slaves. Slaves who had been dumped as children, who had been placed on the garbage heap, who had been abandoned in the cold. And it's in this culture, it's in this context, that Paul reminds the church that they have been adopted. They have been chosen. The creator of the universe has chosen them, not because he sees any economic gain in them, 
but simply because he loves them and he wants to use them because he created them. And Paul is specific that it's the creator God who did this. It's not just the gods. It's not just this kind of divine view of fate or anything like that. It is the creator God, the one who created them and the one who created the world. He is the one who has adopted you. And he says, not only is he the creator, but he is God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center here. In fact, if you read this passage again and again, you'll be surprised at how many times Jesus is mentioned in Christ, in him, in Jesus. Jesus is the center here. So the old song is not too far off. Jesus loves me, this I know. For Paul's letter to the Ephesians tells me so. Little ones to him belong, little ones, right? They are weak, but he is strong. In their weakness, he is strong. Even in their weak state of desperation, being left in the elements vulnerable, he picks them up by his strength. So if you're a slave in the first century in the early church, how do you think this hits you? How do you think this changes you? How do you think this affects you? He picks you up. Your identity is no longer formed by the father who turned his back on you. Your identity is formed by the God who picked you up and took you home. Your defining reality, and we can say this to each other today, your defining reality is not in the rejection that you've experienced in your life. And I know we could hear all kinds of stories today of really awful rejection. We all have painful stories, and this doesn't, um, this doesn't lessen the pain of that experience. But that pain and that rejection is not your defining reality. It's not in how you've been treated. Your defining reality is not in the boyfriend or girlfriend who broke things off with you. Your defining reality is not in the company who fired you. Your defining reality is not in the parent who left you or the spouse who betrayed you. Your identity is in the God who picks you up and takes you home. Now, if you notice here the difference between how the gods in the Roman and Greek world operated and how the God who is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ operates. The gods of the Greek world were um, really flighty. They kind of just were dependent on their own whims. If you've ever read, read Greek or Roman mythology, you know they're pretty messed up. Like sometimes they're close, sometimes they're far away, sometimes they're nice, sometimes they're mean. It's all dependent on their whims. And so you can see how that's reflected in the father in the paterfamilias, in the Roman household. The father really just can choose the child based on his own whims. Whatever he feels like that day, whatever he chooses to do, he can do. So we see that kind of in the household, that that's how these, these people operate. Um, the father was the head of the home. That was the basis of the Roman society. Whatever he wanted to do would happen. And actually, when the child was placed in the elements, when the child was taken out in the cold or in the heat or in the elements, that was something that happened. They, they didn't believe they were committing murder at this point. They weren't killing the child. They believed they were simply handing the child over to the gods, and the gods knew what's best, so they would do whatever was best. Well, then you can see, if that's your belief about who the gods are, you can see that they would think maybe these children didn't deserve to live because most of them died. Yet the God who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ is different. He is the one who truly rescues, the one who chooses. 
This is why it's so important that we recognize that our adoption as sons and daughters of God is not because of anything that we have done. It's not because of our stature, our ability to gain investment. It's not because we lack defect or birthmark. God chooses us simply out of his unconditional love. He calls us in weakness, in our vulnerable, broken state. He knows all that we are, and he calls us worthy of adoption. And that's enough. That's all that we need. This image of adoption uh, strikes home for me. I, you know, I, when we first started the adoption process, many people would say, well, you're going to know so much more about God's adoption of us, you know, through this. And I was kind of, yeah, that's nice. That's a sweet story of God's adoption of us. But as we've walked through this um, for those of you that don't know our story, I'm jumping ahead of myself, um, that our little girl, our 19-month-old Lucy, is adopted. And this image of adoption has really struck home for me. We have been incredibly blessed with Lucy, and I can't even like begin to express how we feel like God has weaved our story together. There are moments as we've walked out this story that we have felt like um, something really sacramental, something really... Um, heaven meets earth-ish about this story and about how God has brought us together. And maybe many of you who are parents or many of you just live your life, I think that there are times in our lives where we experience something that just seems beyond. It just seems deeper. There's something to it that's beautiful that feels like heaven is meeting earth in some way. And that's what Lucy's story with us has felt like. And I don't mean that it's floaty or metaphysical or not real. I mean, we're dealing with all the things that parents deal, deal with. We uh, uh, are dealing with toddler temper tantrums right now. That's very real. Uh, poopy diapers, very real. All of these kind of things. And, and in fact, sometimes I think the lines between what we think is like just real ordinary life and then this kind of heaven-infused life, we kind of think that those two have nothing to do with each other. Um, but actually, God works in real everyday life in some powerful and profound ways. In fact, when C.S. Lewis talked about heaven, he said that heaven was actually somehow like more real than what we experience here. So he would talk about how when, when we would go to heaven and you'd step on the grass in heaven, that the grass was so real that it would actually hurt your feet the first time until you could get used to it because it's so real. God works in real everyday lives. And what, one of the ways that we see that is when we come to the table. We believe something beautiful is happening here, something beyond the normal, something heaven meets earth is happening here at the table, but it never ceases to be real bread and wine. It never ceases to be something that came from the earth. God takes what's real and real earthly life is infused with real heavenly life in a profound way. For those of you that haven't heard our story, um, we have an open adoption. And that means that Lucy's birth mother will always be part of our lives. We will always tell Lucy the story of her adoption. That'll always be part of who we are. And we had a unique experience that we're thankful for that not a lot of adoptive parents have and that we were in the delivery room when Lucy was born. It was a profound experience. And honestly, when we, when we approached adoption for the first time, I was pretty afraid of it. Um, I'll just admit a little bit of my weakness and brokenness here. I, I didn't know what to think. I didn't know how I would feel. There was part of me that was kind of afraid that could I love an adopted child in the same way that I would love a biological child? Is that really something that I could, that I could do? And I know a lot of adopted parents feel the same way. And, 
And, and I kind of got to this point through the process where I began to say that, okay, even if the feelings aren't there, even if I don't feel that same bonding or that same connection, I will choose to love this child. And it feels really selfish to, to say that out loud now and, and kind of revealing something to you here, but it's really how I felt. And in our story, what happened is um, really as, uh, um, as time went along, we were preparing for Lucy to be born, um, I f- began to already feel an attachment to Lucy. We saw the 3D sonogram that they have now and watched that video, and I saw her face and felt that kind of immediate connection to her in a profound way. And, and then uh, our, uh, Lucy's birth mother said that when I would enter the room and start talking, that Lucy would kind of calm down a little bit. And that there's already this connection and this relationship that happened. And that's kind of how it worked with us. And about that time, my grandmother sent me a letter and she reminded me of the story of Joseph in the New Testament. And Joseph was kind of the example of the adopted father in the New Testament. And if you talk about an adopted father who didn't know what was coming, that was Joseph, right? And really, if you read the story of Joseph, he didn't really do anything. Like, they, you know, the angel did stuff. Mary, you know, accepted obediently. I mean, Joseph wasn't even necessarily going to go through with this until the angel appeared to him and told him, you are going to go through with this, you know? And so, so he's kind of walking through this process. But one of the things that happens is when you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel starts with a genealogy of Jesus, tracing kind of back to Abraham. That's the part, if you don't know what the genealogy is, that's the part a lot of us skip when we read it. It's such and such begat, such and such begat, such and that. It goes all the way back to Abraham. But the interesting thing about Matthew's gospel is Matthew traces it through Joseph and Joseph's ancestry, even though Joseph is not his biological, Jesus' biological father. So it's so, so fascinating that not only when God entered our world, not only did he take on human flesh, he took on human lineage. So that's what kind of I was thinking through and struggling with at this time. When Lucy was born, it was love at first sight for us. Um, I can't explain it any other way. There was no doubt in my mind that this is my baby. Now, not every adopted parent or parent in general has that same experience, and that's okay. There's not a right way to feel with that, but that's how our story was working itself out. And that this is kind of a picture of the first time that Ashley and I got to hold Lucy, and you kind of see our eyes and that connection that we made there. Um, And there was no doubt in our mind, God had done something. This was our child. Now, from the time that Lucy was born, it took us 18 months to finalize her adoption. Before you ask, that's a long time you know, to legally uh, finalize her adoption. That was really late. And that wasn't from any choice on our own. The the end result was never endowed or contested or anything like that. But we had to go through several different attorneys just because of some bureaucracy and stuff. We had a few complicating factors. We moved to Tennessee, which kind of caused a wrench in there. But finally, after 18 months, we had this cool experience last month where the judge actually proclaims that Lucy is our daughter. This is a picture of that day of us there. The judge says that and changes her name to our last name. You can tell he was real excited to be in that picture. (laughs) Um, So we felt this powerful connection to Lucy. There's no doubt in our mind that she is our little girl. Yet at the same time, our world was full of a lot of things that seemed to challenge the fact that Lucy was our child. The entire time, those whole 18 months, we had to carry around these 
temporary guardianship papers that said Ashley, Preston and Ashley Sharp are the temporary guardians of Lucy. That always kind of irked me because I knew we're more than temporary guardians. But we had to take these paper to the doctor. We had to take this paper to, and we had to submit it with our taxes and say, yes, we are indeed temporary guardians of Lucy. That's kind of what the society and what the legal system said about our relationship to Lucy. And these are just, that's just the formal or the legal element of it. There's also other things. Every once in a while, we're reminded that our relationship with Lucy is, is different than a lot of other parents. A lot of people will say, and this is just interesting, many of you have said this, that um, she looks just like you guys, right? Or she has your eyes or something like that. And, and, and that's wonderful. You know, we love to hear that. But, but also at the same time, it's a reminder of, well, no, you know, she is from a different gene pool than we are. It is a different kind of relationship. Sometimes people will say silly and stupid things. And let me pre- preface this by saying, if you've said one of these things, you're forgiven this morning. But some people will say, when are you going to have children of your own, right? It's like, really? I thought this was a child of my own. Or, or they'll say different things like that that seem to indicate that biological parenting is somehow better than what we are going through and experiencing. Yet through all of that, all these things that kind of call into question that relationship and where it kind of stands, we've known that this is real, We know that Lucy is really ours. We chose her. Her birth mother chose us. We're not temporary guardians. We really were and really are her parents, and she really is our little girl. The reason why I tell that story today is our world is full of a lot of things that will challenge your identity as a son or daughter of God. There are a lot of things that will constantly try to tell you that your value or your worth is in something else other than that. I wish that we lived in a world where we all loved each other and we all accepted each other and we all saw the inherent value in one another and we recognized you are a son or daughter of God, but we don't live in a world like that. Our world is broken and there are constantly things that say, no, you're only valuable if you're this. You're only valuable if you make this kind of money. You're only valuable if you're this kind of parent. You're only valuable if you look like this. That's constantly the messages that we're going to hear over and over again. We also act out of our wounds. Sometimes we've been told that our value is only in one thing. And then when somebody tells us we're not that thing, we react. We react against that. I was in a a Dollar General store a few months ago and I was buying, I think I was buying something for the church. It was like 5.30 and was standing in line and was kind of in the back of the line and the people who were ahead of me, there were two ladies and one lady kind of cut in front of the other lady and the other lady didn't appreciate that. And so she said, you cut in front of me. The other lady said, no, I've been waiting here longer than you have. And she said, said, no, you haven't. And then it escalated. Okay, one of the ladies was dressed like she had just gotten off out of an office, got off work. The other lady was in pajamas and she had an oxygen mask. And um, the first lady said, well, I just got off work. I've been working all day. You look like you've been at home all day long. You need some more oxygen is what she said. I know. And 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 the other lady, um, you know, responded uh, with things I couldn't quite repeat this morning, but but they began to kind of cuss at each other and you could tell that there were significant wounds. They were of different ethnicities. And so they called out the other person's ethnicity and began to make slurs because of that. And it went back and forth, almost to the point of violence. This poor, this poor checkout guy is, is sitting there and 
and he's hearing this, and all he could really mutter under his breath is, you know, I could have you guys thrown out of here if I wanted to. <laughs> and we're all just standing there in shock, like, what is going on? And I'm realizing the context that we're in and the area of city that we're in, there's significant racial tensions right now. There's a question, there's a gentrification that's happening. And so there's different groups that have moved in that's caused insecurities with all the different kinds of groups. And then I recognize where each of these individuals must be and what they're feeling. One of them is proud, probably proud of their work and, and, you know, and, and trying to kind of emphasize that. The other one is probably insecure in their place and responding out of that wound. And, and so my prayer for them is that these two ladies, it was, Lord, please help them know that they have a deeper identity, that you love them, that their worth and their value is not based on these things, that it's not based on the wounds that they've experienced. Help, would you heal those places and remind them they are daughters of you. That is who they are. Our world, many people will treat you like your value is based on what you can produce, how much money you earn, where your value is as far as the marketplace or society. Many people will only value you based on what you can give them. In our church planting experience, we found that we'd get a lot of meetings initially with people who really, they just wanted to kind of see if we could help them somehow, you know, which is fine. But, but that's kind of, uh, that, that often what happens. Um, often people will judge you initially on how you look. That's just the world that we live in. Those are the messages that we're going to hear. Some will use your past against you. If you've done something in the past, that may be the only lens that some people see you through. Maybe you'll say one thing to a person and that will be the only, as if that's the only thing you ever said to them and they'll blow that way out of proportion. Magazines and television will tell you you are not thin enough, you're not good looking enough, or you're not rich enough. Those are the messages we hear constantly. And I wish it was, well, be on alert because you might hear one of these messages one of these days. No, it's you're going to hear these messages constantly. But there is a deeper identity. Paul, in his another letter to the Galatians, he says this. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, when we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of our world, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, this is the Christmas story, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you an heir. One of the reasons why it's so important that we gather together week after week after week is that we remind ourselves, we remind each other that we have been adopted, that we have been called, not because of something you've done, but because of God's love for you. 
When we take in the, in the meal every week, we are formed by this reality. This is the primary reality of who we are as adopted sons and daughters of God. When we sing songs, we sing about our story and about who God has called us to be and what God is doing in the world. When we hear our story proclaimed, we are formed by that story. When we say the Apostles' Creed together, we are confessing that story together. We are being formed together, reminding each other that we are sons and daughters of God, and that is our primary reality. And we have been chosen and destined into a family, not just as individuals. This isn't just a situation where we're all a bunch of individual Christians and we kind of gather together for inspiration every week. We are part of a family. That is who we are. Now, I get this question a lot. I know a lot of people who are Christians, but they're not actually connected to a church at all. And there's this thought of, well, can you be a Christian without really being part of a church family or without being part of a church. And I think about this analogy, that um, there are babies who are born every day all throughout the world. And most of the time when a baby is born in a context, there is some family there to receive them. Whether it's their biological family or it's an adoptive family or whatever it is, there's some family there to receive them. This human being has come into the world and now they are, to, they are lived and they're trained into what it means to be a human being. That happens every day all throughout the world. Every once in a while, we hear sad stories where children are born and there's no family to receive them. There's no family to take them home and to teach them and train them into what it means to be human. They're still human beings, just like anybody else. But it's sad that there's no family there for them. So when people ask, can you be a Christian and not be part of the church? Well, the answer is yes, but it's rare and it's really sad. We need that family. We need to be in this together. We are formed together into what it means to be followers of Jesus. Our adoption in Christ has to be the starting place. The only way that, that we'll really be changed is in who we are is if we know that we are rooted in an identity that says we're sons and daughters of God. This week, my prayer for us is that we would know and you would know that God has chosen you. No matter what those other messages are that you hear, no matter what those other things are that tell you your worth is based on this, your value is based on this, that you know that he has chosen you. Last week, we received, a, or a few, couple weeks ago, we received a package uh, from our adoption attorney. And uh, it, it was, in this package, it was a bunch of paperwork, kind of the formal documentation of our finalization. And the last page is one that when you read it, I was just weeping. It's the, um, all of the rights and privileges of us as parents and all of the rights and privileges of Lucy as our daughter. And so I wanna do something kind of different this morning. I wanna invite you to close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. And I've, I've taken this document and I've changed it a bit to reflect not our relationship with Lucy, but our relationship, all of our relationship with Christ. And I want to, as a prayer, just read this over us this morning. It is therefore ordered, adjudged and decreed by the court that the child, and you can put your name in there, is hereby declared to be lawfully adopted, the lawfully adopted child of the petitioner, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, and that the exclusive care, custody, nurture, 
education and control of said child is vested exclusively in the petitioner. And henceforth, the relationship of parent and child and all of the rights, duties, privileges, and other consequences of the natural relationship of parent and child shall exist between petitioner and said child. And that anything else would claim to form the identity of said child, those things are relieved, those things are deprived of any and all rights to or over said child or her property, care, custody, or control. It is further ordered, adjudged, and decreed by the court that the name of this child shall be changed to child of God. It is so ordered. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.